Let's pray. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love, and strength to follow on the path that you have set before us, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. We'll be starting in verse 16 this morning. If you would like to follow along the pew Bibles that are provided in the chairs in front of you, you can find Ecclesiastes 3, 16 and following on page 554. My wife and I came of age and had our children in the country of Nicaragua, a wonderful, beautiful, messed up country in the middle of Central America. A country that actually in the last couple of days has begun to go through a massive national, national riot. Uh, many are dead, many more will die in the days to come, uh, and the situation is looking worse and worse by the hour. So keep them in your prayers if you would. It's a place where life is often very hard, and there is not very often much to do. Thus, Hanging out and telling stories is something of a national pastime there. One story gets told over and over. It's found throughout the coastal towns of Latin America, and every town has their kind of way of telling it. But it's the story of the businessman and the fisherman. We lived in a coastal town, and so I heard this story about a thousand times. It's a good one. One day a fisherman comes in from his... uh, fishing. It's in the afternoon. He pulls up to the beach and he has a number of large fish in the boat. And there's a businessman who is uh, visiting this coastal town and says, wow, how long did it take you to get all those fish? Fisherman goes, well, just this morning. And the businessman is impressed and says, wow, well, what else are you going to do with your day? And the fisherman said, oh, well, in the afternoons, I take a nap with my wife, and then I hang out with my kids and eat dinner, and then after dinner, I go and hang out with my friends, we have a drink, we sing and we dance late into the night. Next day, I get up and go fishing. And the businessman says, well, you should go out longer, like if you had all these fish, imagine the amount of fish you could have if you stayed out all day. Before long, you could buy more boats. You could start a corporation. You could have all this money, and then one day, you could retire. You could take a nap with your wife in the afternoons. You could hang out with your kids at dinner, and then after dinner, you could have a drink with your friends. You could sing and make music and hang out late into the night. And the fisherman just stared at him and goes, that's what I do now. Everybody cracks up at the joke. The the crazy thing about the story is uh, literally a thousand times I heard this story. And everybody always dies at the end of it going, ah, those stupid people that work so hard. See, the interesting thing about preaching the gospel in Nicaragua is that the applications have to be quite a bit different because, well, they get something that's very foreign to us. 
The moral of the story is pretty clear. Why strive now for a possible life in the future when you could just give up and start living that life now? Interestingly enough, this is the preacher's same point this morning in our text. The preacher has just given, in the beginning part of chapter 3, given an incredibly poetic discourse on the nature of time, on the fact that there is a time for everything, and that though in the heart of humans we have a longing for eternity, we will never know it, and we know we'll never know it, and that is a frustrating place to be. It's a humbling mystery to humans. We are not eternal. We do not know the end from the beginning, and we will never figure it all out. Our longing will never be fulfilled. Death comes for us all, and so what we can and should focus on is how to live faithfully before God in the here and now. That is what we can and should do. Why? Because God does know what he is doing. He is in control, and he has a good plan. Therefore, we can rest in him. Of course, the biggest reason for being able to do that is something that the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes never even knew, which was the finished and complete work of Jesus Christ. Because of him, we can truly rest in God. But for those who possess the blessed trait of being a cynic, a club of which I am a charter member, there remains uh, an interesting question. How do we deal with a world that is so incredibly messed up as ours while we seek to live faithfully before God in the present? Fine, we must not live as slaves to our past, nor slaves to our future, but in the here and now, life often is ugly. So what do we do? It's that reality that the preacher lays before us this morning, and it's that question that the preacher seeks to answer. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 16, we will read through chapter 4, verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Moreover, I saw that under the sun there is, that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. What happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upwards, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw that all the oppressions... They are done under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has yet, not yet been born, has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that 
All toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, I don't often title my sermons, but I would like to give a title to this sermon, which is simply a deep dive into despair and how to face it well. Clearly, this is not the most encouraging section in the Bible, nor in the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, this is one of those passages that kind of every commentator goes like, P.S. preacher, sorry, you've got to say this out loud in public. I actually enjoy this passage, but that's because I'm a messed up individual. The structure of this passage is a bit confusing. Everybody kind of divides this differently. A lot of things are kind of jumbled in here, but I do think that there is a unifying theme to this section. I think that we could break it into two parts, verses 16 through 22 of chapter 3. I think there we see that wickedness leads to a humble acceptance of our humanity. And then in chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, we see that oppression leads to a humble acceptance of our labors. The main idea I want to put before you this morning is simply this. We ought to labor from a position of acceptance. What do you mean by acceptance, Jeremy? Well, actually, I mean all kinds of things, as we'll get to this morning. My hope is that once again, the book of Ecclesiastes will shock us into the present, will help us to see the world and our place in it rightly in order that we might love God, love neighbor, and live faithfully. This section begins with the bang in verse 16, a stark observation of the world that we have almost always lived in. Moreover, I saw that under the sun there is, that in the place of justice even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Friends, this is the condition of the world since almost the beginning. Now, I would note that I said almost, because in the beginning, things were not this way. The Bible tells us of a time in the beginning when all was right with the world, the kind of world that we all want, Christian and non-Christian. Creation in harmony, a place of justice and righteousness. And what happened in order to destroy such a beautiful world? Well, human sin happened. Our rebellion against God, disobeying what he had led us to believe and do about him and the world we live in. And as a result of their sin, God cast them away from his presence and as a result of their sin, there was division amongst themselves. See, the interesting thing about being alive in the world today and being surrounded by so many people that are both Christians and not is that we all long for the same kind of world. The most shocking thing about that is the fact that we have never experienced the world we all long for. Think about it. You, you, you might have experienced this in part. You might have seen a an action that you would claim is just. You might have seen someone and you go, wow, that is a righteous person, somebody who seems to be living rightly in the world, but you have never experienced the world as you long for it to be. Friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, my question is, why the heck do you dream of such a world? Where do such dreams come from? And how do you ever hope that such a dream will be realized? 
Friends, the Bible does not mess around with how messed up the world is, and neither should we. We do not proclaim that the world is better than we think it is. We proclaim that the world is at least as messed up as we think it is, if not worse. There's a real solidarity with all other human beings in saying, this place stinks sometimes, and what we think ought to be going on doesn't. Friends, never pretend that the world is better than it is. Not only will non-Christians think you are fools, you also will not be in line with the Bible. The first thing that we should accept is that the world is full of wickedness. In light of that declaration, the preacher has two very different statements that he wants to make both beginning with, I said, in my heart. These two statements could not be more different. The first statement is a rather positive one in verse 18, or 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. This first declaration is a good one. It is the declaration of the ultimate justice of God. The preacher is holding on to the hope that God will one day make the world right. The basis of this confidence goes back to verses 1 through 8. There is a time for everything under the sun. Therefore, there is also a time for God to bring justice to bear in the world we all live in. Not only what the writer said, though, in 1 through 8, but also the history of Israel up until this point had shown that God is a God of justice. Now, God's arm of justice does not move at human speed. It does not do what humans desire it to do. In fact, oftentimes God's justice surprises us, either in its speed or in its patience, but God had been a just God up until this point. The reality is that the benefit for us living today at this point, many years after the preachers, that we can look at the world we live in and go, yeah, God has continued to be just through time as proclaimed in his word most fully in Jesus Christ. It is in the person and work of Jesus Christ that God proclaims himself to be the most just. How? Well, as Jesus comes and proclaims that the kingdom of God has come in him, then he also proclaims that he will be the one who will save their people from their sins. How is this done? Through his death on a cross and through his resurrection, both of these events being the way that God says, I will be just and I will condemn sin everywhere, always, and at the same time say, I will provide salvation. How can those things be true? Those answers come to fruition in Jesus. That as Jesus takes the sins of those who would trust in him, then God remains just and also becomes the justifier of those who are ungodly. As we look to Jesus, we see that, yes, God's arm of justice is strong. Friends, do you know what will happen when judgment comes to you. The only assurance comes through faith in Jesus. 
The second thing that we should accept this morning is that salvation is found in Jesus Christ through faith alone. Now, this is all well and good. In fact, friends, this is a real comfort. But it does not remove the pain and wickedness of the world in which we live. You see, here's the thing that happens to Christians all too often. I am saved. I have been made right with God. I am just. God has been just towards me. Therefore, the wickedness that is in the world is apart from me. I'm just going to pretend like it doesn't exist because I'm on the bullet train to heaven. Therefore, everything around me just doesn't matter. But the reality is, friends, is that this world is broken. What benefit is there to living in a world as messed up as ours? We find the answer to that question in the second declaration that is rather different. Verse 18, I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Friends, I have a declaration for you this morning that will not really make you all that comfortable. You are in many ways no better than the animals. You know, we, we have this kind of common phrase in modern day parlance. You probably don't use this if you're over the age of 25, but that's all right. You might have heard people go, oh man, that guy is a beast. And usually what we mean by that is this person is like un, un, unnaturally strong or fast or talented but the reality is, friends, is that you're a beast, and so am I. Now, you might go like, hold on, Jeremy. I am offended. First of all, your problem with the Bible, not with me. I'm just reading. But hold on with me for a second, because you might say, well, this doesn't actually seem to be biblical. I mean, in, in, in the very beginning, in the book of Genesis, it says that humans are created in the image of God. We are the pinnacle of all creation. We're better than anything. Well, first of all, just like slow down. Like, we are created in the image of God and all that, but remember to always be a good lawyer and a good philosopher. Whenever anybody makes a statement, ask one simple question. First of yourself and probably of the other person. The question to yourself is, do I know what the other person means by that? And the answer is usually no, so then your second question is, what do you mean by that? You know how many fewer fights you would get in with your spouse if you just asked the question, what do you mean by that? Kids, how few whoopings you'd get if you just asked your parents, what do you mean by that? Not like a jerk, but actually trying to figure out the answer. Friends, we would get a long way in the world if we just asked the question, what do you mean by that? So we asked the preacher, what do you mean that I'm just a beast? Well, the preacher explains himself in verse 19 through 21. For what happens, for, there it is, here's the explanation. What happens to the children of man, what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upwards and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. The preacher is speaking from the point of life in this world. He looks at humans, he looks at animals, and he goes, everything breathes and everything dies. And that body just kind of decays, and you can't see where the spirits go. Those of us in this room who have seen people die in person know that there is nothing magical that happens like in some of those movies where like, there's this little glowing orb that kind of goes up or goes sideways or goes... Nothing like that happens. 
We don't know what happens. We can't observe it. The preacher's point is that we are from dust, and to dust we all return. This is another thing we should accept this morning. Friends, you're just going to die, just like everything else is going to die. This is a humbling reality that should keep us from raging against the God who brings about justice in his own good time. Remember, that's the first declaration. Now we've got the second one. Just look around you. I've told you this before, and you all have laughed, but I'm going to say it again. Get your ear real close to a dead animal and hear the sound of your future. I think we'd all, yeah, this is a nervous laughter. You're like, shoot, I should probably do this. First time it was funny, now it's like, oh, man. Here's the thing. You might begin to believe that you are going to die in a profound way should you be near death. This is the problem of buying meat in cellophane at the stores that has been all kind of bled out and everything. You just kind of death to you is such a foreign concept. If, if, that doesn't, if that doesn't ring true with you, then just think about how shocked you are when somebody dies. Friends, death is the ultimate equalizer, will happen to us all. It should be a humbling reality when we look at all the wickedness in the world and we go, how could this possibly happen? When will God act? Just remember that you're just a beast that's going to die in many ways. Who are we to shake our fists at God? That's the reality is we are so small and finite. Now, once again, those who live at this moment and not in the preacher's moment actually have a profound benefit that the preacher did not know. The peace that we can have today is infinitely greater than that of the preacher's. Why? Because while the preacher is unclear where spirits go when we die, the New Testament gives us great hope. Jesus, as he is dying on the cross, speaks to one of the thieves that is next to him, saying, Today you will be with me in paradise. Or as we heard in 2 Corinthians 5 this morning, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. We groan, longing to put on our earth, heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us his spirit as a guarantee so that we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Friends, the reality is that though we like to pretend we know much more than we do, we are not exactly clear about what we would call the intermediate state. What happens exactly to humans when they die? As far as, how does time work? 
Okay, if you want to like really trip out this morning, this or this afternoon after church, you can go eat some hot chicken and just think about this. Ready? Ha! Hold on. Does time continue to exist? Are like are people uh, up? Because if it's up, then where do people in China go? Unless you're one of those flat Earth people, which we're gonna have to have a conversation afterwards. If you're one of those people, but where where do where do the spirits go? Is there a place? Are they looking down on us? Is there time? Are they just waiting to the end? Is it, is it the same as this? We have very little idea. Do we kind of just die and then wake up in our new bodies? We don't know, and there's all kinds of like raging academic debates about this. The reality is it doesn't matter, because here is what we know. To be absent here is to be present with the Lord. That's good enough for us. Forever. Done deal. So while we do not know, as the author here says, who knows what happens to us after we are gone? What happens after us? We don't know what's going to happen after us here, but the reality is we know exactly what's going to happen to us personally once we are dead. We will be with the Lord, and the guarantee is the spirit that is sent into our hearts, as Paul puts in 2 Corinthians, which is the promised gift of Jesus who died for us in whom we are made right. Friends, we have all the time in the world to be patient, if that is the reality. We need time to be patient because God's justice does not work on our time frame. But if that is a reality, then we can bear with the wickedness in our world that we cannot completely remove. We should humbly accept our humanity. In light of the wickedness in our world, that's not where the author ends. He then continues on and 4, 1 to 6, talking about oppression that leads to a humble acceptance of our labors. Just in case things were not dark enough in chapter 3, at the beginning of chapter 4, the preacher takes us straight to the bottom of the pit. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. For better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. To not understand the preacher here is probably to confess that you have never faced personally oppression in any real way. Friends, there are states of living that seem worse than death. There are situations that people go through that seem that it would have been better to have never been born at all. Now, what we must remember here is that the author is trying to shock us through his language. He's been doing it since the beginning. He will do it to the end. This is how Hebrew wisdom literature works. It is not just saying it's better to be dead than to be alive. It's saying it seems to be that way in light of the terribleness of the world in which we live sometimes. 
Friends, we live in an ugly world. And this is a thing that we must accept. Sex trafficking, genocide, rape, shady loan officers. We could go on and on for days. Never let your theology lead you to look away from oppression and not name it for what it is. Friends, to do so is to destroy the very religion that you believe in. We will never be able to fix the world we live in. Give up on that dream right now. But that does not mean that we do not name things what they are and do what we can. The reality is that sometimes it all just seems too much. It seems like it would just be better to be dead or to never have been born at all. Friends, when you are speaking with people who say things like this, just turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and go, oh, that's actually in the Bible. We tend to think that thoughts like this are so ungodly, are so wicked, so wrong, so non-Christ-centered or whatever, gospel-centered. No, this is the reality of the world we live in. To not name these things is to deny them. Now, these things are not true, but friends, as we tell our six-year-olds all the time, feelings aren't facts. Feelings are what they are. We ought not to just shrug them off. How do we respond to the oppression that we find around us? The writer closes this section looking at three common ways that we tend to respond to oppression. In verse 4, we see that oftentimes we join the rat race. In verse 5, we see that we often give up on life. In verse 6, we see that we sometimes, rarely, seek after a handful of quietness. The first two are easy. The, second, the third is the work of a lifetime. Now we begin with joining the rat race. Verse 4, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. It's also his vanity and striving after wind. This is the keeping up with the Joneses kind of attitude. They're always getting bigger, better, faster, stronger, whatever, just, just because the other person has it. Now again, the writer is being provocative. He is being boisterous. He's being hyperbolic. I, I do not believe that all labor that anybody has ever done has been out of envy for somebody else. But we won't ask for a testimony time for you to come on up here and tell us all the secrets of your life, but I would be willing to bet that most of us many times strive for something to be like somebody else, to better them or at least match them. The expression, if you can't beat them, join them, applies all too often to our labors. This is a form of oppression. It's a response to oppression. Oh, oh no, they're, it's, they're clamping down on me. What should I should join them. Just get in the race. 
and fight to the top. Friends, this is a terrible way to live. Your worst life now. See, oftentimes we think that hell is at the end of time. Separated from God, complete abandonment to ourselves, divorced from any hope in the world. And that is true. But friends, in a real way, hell is also right now to live in these kinds of ways. Friend, if you find yourself living in this way this morning, let me just ask you one question. How's it going? It's not the only way to live, though. The second way is also sobering. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. The, the beautiful thing about poetry is it sometimes just makes you like cringe. Oh, oh gross. It's what it's supposed to do. My wife's not a big fan of the word flesh. <laughs> right? It's one of those kind of words that just kind of makes you like, oh, gross. This reaction makes just as much sense to the first. It's the opposite of the first. If the first one is to join the race, jump to the front, this is the one that just says, I'm, I'm done, I'm out, I'm giving up on everything. This is the oppression that leads you to just be in complete despair, say nothing that I do matters, evil will always win, Jesus just take me home when I die, I have given up. But this, clearly, as the writer proclaims, is the response of a fool. Giving up on life in the face of oppression does not fix anything and only leads you to wasting away. So often we think that if we cannot fix everything, then we might as well do nothing. But friends, here's the reality of the situation. You have two hands in 24 hours, so get busy. Now, to those of you who are in the rat race of life, here's the reality. you got two hands in 24 hours, so just chill out. So take whichever message you need to take away with you this morning. Choose your own application. Give up or get busy, but remember this. you got two hands in 24 hours. You're not going to fix the world, but you can do something, so get busy. What we do will be different. Friends, it is true that some of us are called to enter jobs that are very stressful, they are very high-powered, they are very whatever. This is not a call to just go move on to the compound that we have all joked and dreamed about called the farm, which will be surrounded by a fence, and we will all live inside of it, and we will brew beer, and we will raise animals, and it will be wonderful. Coming in 2024. Just kidding. Not happening. Not happening. But... The reality is, is that what it looks like for us to neither join the rat race nor give up on life will look different to some people. And to some of us, it might look like some of us are joining the rat race. And for others, it will look like some are giving up on life. And the reality is the benefit of being within the people of God is that you can saddle up somebody and go, you know what? It looks like you're giving up. Are you giving up? Or you can come up alongside somebody and go, you know what? Are you just... What are you doing that for? Here's the thing, though. You ask the question, you better be ready to listen to the answer. But the reality is, friends, that these are two possible ways of responding to a world full of so much wickedness and oppression. 
A world in which we have to be patient on the timing of God. That third option is the way we ought to go. Verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of turmoil, toil, and striving after wind. Friends, this is the reaction of the fishermen. Could the fishermen fish longer, get more boats? Yes, indeed he could. And here's the trick of the story, the thing that Nicaraguans never take into account. Some of us need to fish longer and buy the boats and run the corporation. That's not inherently sinful. It's one of the reasons why Nicaragua is so jacked up as a country is because everybody laughs and goes, nah, we're not doing anything. And for some of us, that's the temptation. The reality is, though, is that we ought to use the gifts that God has given us to the extent that he has given them to us. But in using the gifts, the what we seek after is always the same. Not hands full of toil, but just a handful of quietness. But what quietness looks like for all of us might look a little bit different. Most of us should be striving to live a less upwardly mobile life. But the reality is, is that all of us should seek after quietness. I do not pretend this morning to know what quietness looks like for all of us. But I do have one good idea of how we might begin going about achieving such a life. As I said, this is the pursuit of a lifetime. You will constantly find yourself jumping into the rat race or giving up on everything. So we strive after this handful of quietness. How do we do so? Well, Amongst the many ideas that I have, one that I think is primary and key is earnestly meditating and praying the Lord's Prayer. Do you know the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Friends, it is hard to strive in vain when you pray for God's name to be hallowed or honored. It is also hard to give up on life. It is hard to strive in vain when you pray for God to give you your daily bread. It's also hard to just give up on life. It's hard to be asked to be delivered from evil. And then go on trying to fix the world yourself. It's also hard to give up on life. Friends, we live in a world full of wickedness and oppression. We always have, and until Jesus returns, we always will. We ought to accept these realities. God will bring justice in his good time. We ought to accept that reality. It is through faith in Jesus Christ alone that we become accepted by God. We should accept that reality this morning. Our response to the evil in our world ought to be of faith in God and a humble acceptance of both our humanity and our labors. The sooner we accept these realities, the sooner we will find quietness. Not a quietness that leads us away from the world, but into the world in hope. To work amongst those who are all too often joining the oppressors or giving up on life. A quietness that leads us to labor 
from a position of acceptance. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. A word that often confronts us and shows us ourselves. We pray that we would accept the truths that have been put forth this morning from your word. We pray that we would see our smallness and your bigness, your goodness, and our lack of information. That we would have the courage to name the world what it is and still seek after quietness at all times. To avoid the rat race and avoid giving up. Lord, we confess that too often we find ourselves in one of those two streams. It is easy to live as if you did not exist and that you were not good. God, remind us again this morning that you have been good to your people in Jesus Christ through whom we have salvation and acceptance and hope, and thus the time to be patient. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.